Be seated. Good morning and welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. If you're a guest with us, we want you to know that you're welcome. We'd love to see you after the service to get to know you just a little bit better and to invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you may have. As we think about our lesson today, you see one thing Gentile Christians must not do. Let me explain that just a little bit. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 15. We'll be reading there in just a minute. But before we do that, I want you to think about the fact this morning that during the first ten years or so after the church was established on the day of Pentecost, there were no Gentile converts. There were no Gentiles who were a part of the church. And so we know that when there was a special revelation given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and he went to the household of Cornelius uh, because of that special revelation that said that I want you to go and to preach to the Gentiles, we know that the Gentiles became a part of the New Testament church. Well, following that, we know also that the, uh, the Jewish brethren back in Jerusalem began to hear that they were now Gentiles who were being baptized, and so they had some questions, and they, I guess you might say, summoned Peter. At least there were some things that went on that caused uh, Peter to go and to speak to the folks back in Jerusalem. And sometimes we call what happens in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 the Jerusalem Conference. It's never actually termed that in Scripture. But the whole discussion centered around, hey, we've got Gentile converts now. What should they be doing? Now, there were some who had gone out and said that they needed to do what the Jews did in keeping the Old Testament law. And we know that wasn't the case. We understand that. But in the book of Acts chapter 15, we understand, and Dax rather read this to us this morning, that there were some things that this group of people, including James, the half-brother of our Lord, a conclusion that they came to. And we read about it in Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. There the Bible says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now those are the things, if you back up, that James says that he suggested that they write. If we drop down just a few verses in verses 28 and 29, we understand that it wasn't just the opinion of James and others who were there at that particular meeting in Jerusalem But the Bible says here in verse 28, the Holy Spirit gave his approval to it as well. And so it was the men and it was God himself who approved what was about to be written. He goes on and says that they were writing this letter and that they were to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. He says, if you keep yourself from these, you will do well. And then they ended the letter. English Standard Version simply says, farewell. As we look at that this morning, we understand that three of those four things are probably not something that we deal with even as Gentiles today. You know, we don't normally go to the grocery store and find something that's in the meat case that has been sacrificed to an idol. Uh, We don't have that problem here uh, uh, today. 
uh, we don't have so much problem with the idea that, uh, that there was blood that was associated with that sacrifice to that idol, those things that were strangled. All four of these things that are mentioned here are mentioned in relation to the, to the, to the different ways that they worship their pagan deities, their pagan gods. We don't have so much uh, uh, problem with the idea of the blood and those things that are strangled. But folks, we do have a problem with that last one that's mentioned. The idea, as the English Standard Version says, of sexual immorality. You see, the Gentiles were to abstain from sexual immorality. If you're reading from the King James Version and some of the other translations, you'll note that he simply says that they were to abstain from fornication. What is fornication? You know, that's a big word. That's something that maybe we don't hear a lot. It comes from the word from which we get our word, pornography. It's the word porneia, and it literally means or refers to illicit sexual intercourse in general. It can refer to a variety of situations, sexual acts between persons who are not legitimately married to one another. Adultery is one of those things that is included in fornication. Not all fornicators are adulterers, but adulterers, all adulterers are fornicators. Adultery simply refers to an illicit sexual activity between one person who is married and another person who is not legitimately that person's spouse. It can refer to homosexuality and a lot of other things that we can uh, discuss. We could go back to the Old Testament and get some examples from there, but that's not the thing that we want to so much focus on this morning. Let me tell you a story, though, to help us focus our mind and focus our attention on what, what we want to talk about this morning. There was a mother who heard that her son had moved his girlfriend into his new home. And she was concerned with that, and so she went to see him. He was the only one at home on that particular day. And, and so she asked him about it, and he said, Mom said, you know, it's really not what you think. She just needed a place to stay, and I had this spare bedroom, and, and he took her to the bedroom and showed her the bedroom. The girlfriend had brought some of her things from home and, and said, you know, uh, decorated it up, and he said, now, now here it is that, that she is staying here in this separate bedroom, and I'm in my own. She, it, it's not what you think, Mom. Well, something happened. The phone rang, and she was left there standing alone for a minute. They continued to talk after he returned, and then she left. Well, a few days later, she got a phone call from her son. It went something like this. Mom, we can't find our remotes. We can't turn the television on. We can't turn the stereo on. We can't do any of that. We've looked everywhere we know to look. Can't find them anywhere. You wouldn't happen to have put them somewhere, would you, when you were here the other day? To which she replied, well, yes. She said, I put them in your fiancé's bed under the cover. It wasn't exactly as he was saying, was it? She was not spending her time in her room and him in his. You know, as we think about things like that, it goes on a lot, doesn't it? It's something that is concerning to us. Uh, we call it simply something like this, cohabitation. That's the word that we use for it today. 
Just a few years ago, people called it shacking up, didn't they? Those of us who are older, we, we remember that term. But God simply calls it fornication. Sexual immorality. Now, why would we want to study something like this? Let me, let me just give you some background. Back last year, when we were planning for this year, when the elders and Connor and I met, we looked at a number of topics that we needed to discuss, and this is one that came up. And so we're talking about it from that standpoint because the elders thought we need to be informed as a congregation, as God's people, as Christians. And so we talk about it because of that. But I want you to know this morning, it's bigger Bigger than that, even, that the elders have asked us to learn about these kinds of things. Why is it bigger than that? Well, let me just run through a few statistics for you. Now, I don't want to bore you by these statistics, but I, I want you to think about some things this morning. In 1960, there were, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 439,000 couples who were living together unmarried in the United States of America. In 2005, the same Census Bureau says that there are now, uh, in all those years that have intervened, not 439,000, but 4.8 million who are now living together. That's 2005. In the census of 2010, which was reported in 2011, that number jumped from... 4.8 million to 8.1 million who were living together, not married. 7.6 million couples of the opposite sex were living together. And at the same time, in that same period, 514,735 same-sex couples were listed as living together to total 8.1 million couples living together outside the bonds of wedlock. Now folks, I want you to think about that for a minute. That involves 16.2 million souls in the United States of America. 16.2 million souls. Surveys say today that the idea of cohabitating and living together, shacking up, is one that's not looked down upon like it used to be. As a matter of fact, only 27% of those who were surveyed disapproved. Only 27% disapproved. And so you do the math, over 70% said it's okay. Not only that, but I want you to think about this this morning. 60% of couples today, on average, cohabitate or cohabit before marriage. 60%. Two-thirds of those who are under 30 believe it's a good idea and a good test to live together, to make sure the couple is compatible before they marry. Folks, even some good church-going folks have softened their stance and don't think it's all that bad to do that even today. You know, I heard one person describe this trial before marriage as the never-ending job interview. 
He said it was like, uh, uh, like you were on a job interview and, and they would never tell you if you were hired or not. But just one day you came in, you were fired. You know, you broke up. The couple broke up. Well, really and truly, is it a good idea? Is it a good idea? Just, just leave God out of it for a minute. And ask yourself, is it really a good idea? Two-thirds of the couples who cohabited before marriage ended up divorcing. Now, a lot of times we hear that the statistics of divorce are somewhere around 50% of all married couples. Well, if two-thirds, if, if 66% of those who cohabit make up a part of that 50%, there's somewhere along the way, you know, we could discuss the t- statistics. Somebody's got to be down here. It's less to make the 50, okay? Two-thirds end up divorcing. About 50% of those who cohabit break up before they're married. 85% separate within the first 10 years of their marriage. And there is not one single study that has determined living together before marriage. This is, not, this is not preacher studies. This is studies that's done out in the scientific world. Not one single study has determined living together before marriage results in a better marriage. Not one single one. Studies have found some things, though. Studies have found that Women who are in these relationships who cohabit before marriage, they are more likely to be abused. Women in these uh, cohabiting relationships, they are more likely to suffer from depression. And, And not only that, but it's the studies show that the partners, both of them, in this uh, this kind of relationship, they are more likely to cheat. Imagine that. Doesn't sound real good, does it, as it relates to marriage. No wonder God calls cohabitation, shacking up, fornication, sin. No wonder he calls it that. One thing that we do want to mention before we go any farther in this lesson, though, is that we must remember that persons who have participated in cohabitation or are currently doing it, that they still need the gospel. They still need the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what? A lot of them have never been taught better. They just don't know that the actions that they're taking is wrong. Society says it's okay. That's the prevailing attitude. I've showed you 27% disapprove, the other 70 some odd percent approve. Society now says it's okay. It's legal to do it. But we all know that just because the thing's legal doesn't make it right, does it? There may even be some here this morning who, who don't understand why we shouldn't be like the rest of the world in these kinds of matters. You know, some are reachable. They need the gospel. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where Paul goes through a number of things, including sexual immorality that 
these people had done. And he says in verse number 11, And such were some of you. They had participated in this kind of activity. But now, Paul goes on and says, They're washed, they're sanctified, they're justified in the name of the Lord. They were, but they were no longer preaching or practicing that. Some of us have been watching a personal evangelism study downstairs on Sunday. In one of the cases, if you remember, for those who have been in that class who are watching that, one of the cases that was presented was of a couple that, uh, uh, that Rob Whitaker had studied with. And, and as they came to the conclusion of that study, they found out that the couple was cohabiting. They were living together. They wanted to be baptized, and of course it worked out that they were. The lady stayed with Rob and, and his wife that night, Nicole, and the man stayed at home. The next day they were married, and after their marriage they were baptized for the remission of their sins. So people can be reached, the Galatian, or rather the uh, Corinthian folks, some of them were reached, there's still people in our day and time that can be reached, and so we need to remember that. But again, I want us to continue on with our study. And I want us to think about something this morning. I want us to think about how God mandated a preventative for fornication. As we think about that, marriage is that preventative. When we think about marriage, there are usually three things that we think about in regard to marriage. Companionship, chastity, and children. Let's focus on that middle one, that second one, for just a moment this morning. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2? Paul writes there and says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they'd evidently ask him some questions. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul would later tell them why. He said that it was not good for man and the woman to have the sexual relations. It wasn't good for them to marry, according to verse 26, because of the current persecution that was going on. And so we don't have time to discuss that, but I just want you to understand this morning that what Paul says here relates to what we're talking about. He talks about sexual immorality. He talks about fornication. He says there's a preventative to it. Get married. Don't try it out first and then get married. Paul says get married. Now we understand that this temptation to fornication, sexual immorality, is great. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 9 Paul says this, he says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to, watch this, English Standard Translation, burn with passion. That speaks of the greatness of the desire that God placed within us. Paul would talk about it again in other passages. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at verse number 5, he speaks about sexual immorality and he talks about how that we're not to be like the Gentiles in the lust of their concupiscence is the way that it's put in the King James Version. If you're reading from the English Standard, from the passion of their lust. Let me explain that just a little bit. 
when the, when the King James translators translated, they translated the normal word for lust as concupiscence. That's not a word we use a whole lot. And, and, and there's another word that's there that's translated lust in the King James Version. Not the normal word, but the word pathos. Suffering. Passion. The idea is a very strong, overpowering feeling that causes one to lose the dignity of self-control and slavishly fulfill the animal urges. We understand the idea of sexual fulfillment is a very powerful thing. But God has given us a means by which to satisfy that. He said, get married. Marriage for companionship, for chastity, a right way of living, and for children. But then, let me ask the question again, why should we be so concerned? Why is it such a big deal? There are a lot of people who are doing it you showed us that by statistics. Probably you know someone or more than one couple who is cohabiting this morning, living together. Why? I think one of the big reasons is found in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want us to back up to chapter 3 for just a few minutes for the rest of our lesson. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I want you to read verses 11 through 13 with me. It won't be on the screen, so if you have your Bible, you may want to turn there. I just want you to see what context, what we're about to talk about, is found in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, Paul writes and says, Now may the God, our God and Father himself, and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Now watch this phrase at the end of the King English Standard Version. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Think about what he says there. All that he's talking about, what's going on, getting them blameless and holy, relates to one thing, to the coming of the Lord. If you look in chapter 4, if you drop on down to verse 13, in chapter 4 you're going to again encounter this idea of the coming of the Lord. They, they were wondering about the coming of the Lord. And, and what about those people who've died? Will they get to participate in, in His coming? And Paul reassures them about their loved ones who have passed on. But again, the, the idea is the coming of the Lord. And so at the end of chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 4, we have the coming of the Lord being discussed. But then there's something in the middle of that. There's a discussion that's there. And I don't believe that he's changed his topic so much. 
He has some things under consideration, even in regard to that blamelessness and holiness that he introduced us to at the end of chapter 3. And so what do we find then if we look? Well, in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes these words. And remember, there weren't chapters and verses when this was written. Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received us how you ought to walk, um, receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul is telling them, you know, you're doing a good job, but we want to keep you doing a good job and doing an even better job. Verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Remember, he introduced us to holiness and blamelessness back at the end of chapter 3. Possess his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Remember, we introduced verse 5 just a few minutes ago. The, the powerful lust, that passion of lust. Verse 6 goes on that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. As you look at that passage and you think about it, based upon the coming of the Lord, here are some things you need to remember, Paul says. Well, what are some of the things that we need to remember? In view of the coming of the Lord, what are some things that we need to remember in this context? Let's look at five or six. For those of you who've been wondering, you're about to do your writing, okay, on the back of the bulletin. One of the things that we need to remember is this, there is a way we must live in order to please God. Again, look at verse number one of, of our passage uh, there in 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received us, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing. Focus on that word ought for just a moment. A lot of times when we think about the word ought, we think, well, it's probably a good idea, something we, we should do, maybe we should do, but we don't have to. But in reality, that's not our word here. It's from the word day in the original language, which means this, it is necessary, it is binding, it is a must. And so he says... There's a way that we live, a way that we must live if we're going to be pleasing to God. Again, the Thessalonians were doing a good job. They just needed to be reminded. They needed to grow and others needed to hear as well. But there's a way that we must live in order to please God. Number two, you see the Thessalonians had been given instructions through the Lord Jesus. Instructions through the Lord Jesus. Now, if you look at the word 
or, or the translations of the King James Version, New King James, you're going to read the word, not instructions, but commandments. If you were to read from the American Standard Version, you'd read the word charge. The word's definition is this, a proclamation, a command, or a commandment that is strictly used of commands received from a superior. Sort of like a soldier receiving an order from a general. Someone who is a superior. You see, we're soldiers in the Lord's army. And we've been given orders concerning our conduct as to how we're to live. So we need to remember that these instructions came not from Paul, who was their superior, but they came from above. They came from the Lord, who is the head of all things to the body, to the church. Number three, as we think about what we need to remember, it's God's will that His offspring be holy in life. Again, look at verse number three. In verse number three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That word sanctification is interesting. It's translated holiness, same word, translated holiness in verse 7 here in this passage as well. It means to be set apart, devoted for God's holy service. We are separate, aren't we? Uh, the very idea of the church is the called out ones. We are to be separate. We're not like the rest. If you want a good illustration of the definition, you go back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And in that passage, God is giving some instructions. The Bible says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate. King James Version says, sanctify. Sanctify to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of, uh, of beast, is mine. Set it apart because it belongs to the Lord. If you drop down to verse number 5, you get that word, not sanctify, but it's the word, he explains it more in detail. You shall set apart to the Lord, belongs to Him, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. That's the idea of sanctification. We belong to the Lord. And so it's God's will that His people, His offspring, His children, of which we are, if we're a member of the body of Christ, that we be holy in life. But next, to be pleasing to God, we must abstain from sexual immorality. Again, verse number 3, can't be any, any clearer, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the same thing that the Gentiles had been told long before. But Paul is reminding them of this in view of the coming of the Lord. Here's something that I need to specifically remind you of. That one who's to be pleasing to the Lord abstains from sexual immorality. God expects us to have self-control in regard to our body. To be in in a manner that's consistent with holiness and honor, if you notice there in the passage. 
And look at verse number 6, just quickly. Verse number 6, he said that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You know, most of the time, when this idea of cohabitation, living together, having a sexual partner outside of marriage, whether you're in the same house, living in the same house or not, the two who are participating in that are not really thinking about their brother or their sister. Oh, they, they have their mind on them, but not on their soul. And so we wrong the other person. It's one of the reasons that it's wrong to participate in the sexual immorality. We wrong the other person. Which brings us to number five. The Lord is the avenger when we fail in these matters. And you thought the only avengers were the ones you see on the movies. Iron Man and Captain America and all of those guys. You know, they're, they're comic book heroes. But this is no laughing matter. When we wrong our brother, when we live in this sexual immorality, the Bible says the Lord is the avenger in these matters. Avenger is not one who comes to save you. The avenger is the one who comes to take vengeance. Pretty important, isn't it? Especially when we view it in context. When Paul is talking about, hey, remember this, at the coming of the Lord, you're to be holy and you're to be blameless, and here's one thing you can't do and be that. And if you are, the Bible talks about the vengeance. The Lord Himself is the avenger. But then, last of all, this morning, we need to remember that this teaching is not man-made. Not man-made. Look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, remember the discussion that he's just had about the sexual immorality, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You know, it may be that sometimes Christians say when you hear lessons like that, well, that preacher is nothing but an old fogey. Right? He just doesn't know what he's talking about. He needs to get into the modern world. Paul said... It's not that you're not listening to me because the teaching didn't come from me. I didn't make it up. Paul didn't make it up. The elders didn't make it up. I mentioned them at the beginning of this lesson. They didn't make it up. Paul says if you disregard the teaching in this matter, you're not disregarding man. You're disregarding God. It's His will. My rules don't apply. They don't mean anything. But God's mean everything. One day He's coming back. We understand that. And Paul said, in, in light of that, this is how we are to live. 
Cohabiting, shacking up, fornication is not some outdated moral code that can just be discarded on the ash heap of time. Wrong in the days of Moses, wrong in the days of Jesus, is wrong 50 years ago, it's wrong today, and it's wrong when we all stand before God in judgment. And that's why we should be so concerned about it. That's why we need to study it and give it some attention. You know, really, it's not just Gentile Christians. It's every Christian that has this rule of law given to us by God. Someone, this is not original with me, wrote this. said, here's what a person is not thinking when they ask you to move in with them or to have a sexual relation with them without or outside of marriage. And particularly in regard to moving in. Listen to it. I, Jack, take you, Jill, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And there, too, I pledge you my faith. You're not hearing that. There's no commitment. You can reverse that around as well. I, Jill, take you, Jack, to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward. And you can repeat all of those wedding vows. You're not hearing that. That's what they're not saying. But here's what you really are hearing. God, I'm allowing my passion and my lust to control me. God, I'm re- I really have no regard for the soul of the one with whom I'm sinning. God, I thought I was just snubbing the preacher, the elders, those church-going folks. But really, I'm snubbing you. That's what you hear. Oh, people may not be saying that. But by life, by actions, that's what we say. And so, there's one thing that Gentile Christians must not do. And see, that was, that was found and mentioned among four things that the church, the early church, said that they're not to do. One of them, fornication, sexual immorality. Paul says it's greater in that one day we'll face God. When we do, we don't want to be found in that condition. It's so important that he singled it out. The early church singled it out in regard to the Gentile Christians, and Paul singled it out in regard to the coming of the Lord. We need to talk to our friends, teach them, help them understand God's will. Not just this matter, every matter, but this matter that we've talked about this morning. And I hope that when we do, we remember the soul 
that they're reachable, that God wants to reach them. Because He doesn't want to come in vengeance against any of us. He wants us to be saved. That's the life that we should live before others. The teaching that we should be giving them. But there are things that we must do in order to please God. Things that we can't do if we want to please Him. And we've discussed one this morning. It may be this morning that you're here and you're not a Christian. Why not become one? The Lord wants you to be saved. He gave His Son for you. You can. Why not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Repent of the sins that you have in your life. Make the great confession. Be immersed, baptized for the remission of your sins. Maybe this morning that there's something in your life and, and it may not be, have anything to do with what we've talked about this morning, but there may be something in your life that you know when Jesus comes that He will not approve, that you need to get straightened out. If you need to respond to His invitation for any reason this morning, why not come right